yes. Thank you, Willie D. Now, it's spring here in Hawks Bay. Very springy outside. We are a mixed falk. What is falk? <laughs> Not just a funny word. Uh, F-A-W-C-K. Food and wine classic. Why do I mention that? Well, because uh, I would, under normal circumstances, tell you to go check out Willie D's band, Tropical Downbeat Orchestra, which is playing this Saturday, if you're listening to this when I post it, which should be Thursday or late Wednesday night. Uh, Willie is playing at the Abbey Winery and Brewery. That's right, they got brewery there too. But I just saw and it's sold out. I don't know, maybe you could walk up, try to sneak in. I have no idea. But there's all kinds of great events going on still. We just had our great Falk event up at Miller Road. That was a huge success on Saturday afternoon. A great lunch with Chef Ben Cruz from Little Blackbird. It's all happening here in Hawks Bay right now. Uh, there are two great events. There's still some events if you go to it uh, that aren't sold out. A lot are sold out. <clears throat> but there's a couple great ones still happening. I saw uh, like a Sunday school and uh, some oyster and white beat, white bait street bar. Some of these free events are still wide open that I think we're going to check out. Uh, And also the Hawks Bay wine auction. So it's all happening. But I did want to mention that uh, Friday and Saturday night, there's a free event, a natural wine party. And that's a couple coffee right in downtown Hastings. Now for the rest of the world who was listening, you need to get to Hawks Bay in the springtime. It's a bit underrated. Everybody tries to come in February, January, you know, when it's real hot. I just went to the beach last week, and it was awesome. Water was good. There was people surfing. We were swimming. It was a lot warmer than I thought it would be. I think it might be one of those El Nina, La Nina things, because I've certainly been in the water in December before, and it's been a lot colder than it was. So great time to come to Hawks Bay and check it out. Uh, and Falk, I think, goes through, it's a, it's a really short in the in the spring-summer version of it, so it only goes through Sunday, so hop on some of those events, and like I said, there's some great free ones, and then there's some really awesome celebrities passing through, and cheesemongers, and oyster shuckers, and everybody else you think you can imagine, so even some breweries sneaking in there, like I said, I think there's a... Uh, couple other brewery type events so check that out today on the podcast we have sorry about that cough just like it is you know everywhere in the world if it's springtime you're usually getting a sort of late season cold and uh shit (laughs) it feels like just yesterday it was hailing outside and cold and we still were having the fireplace on and now it's uh you know, it was 30 degrees the last few days, which is for you people up in America, that's about 86 degrees. So yeah, things are changing quick and the vineyard is going off. Pretty fun time of year. I am drinking right now a 2018 Merlot from Zaria. And I must say, I'm a bit biased because Bryce is a mate who makes these wines, but uh, the guy is doing his damn best to reinvent that varietal that some people knock, but Man, this is a vibrant, young, dare I say, crunchy style. Uh, I really like it, yet it's pretty ripe. Everything that's come off of that vineyard in the past, to me, has had a real fleshy mocha type of thing that you get in the Bridge Pa with things like Merlot, Franc, and Cab Sav. But this one has that, but it's also really, really lively. So 
Uh, I recommend it for the barbecue this summer. Check it out on the shelves. Uh, Bryce is kicking it with these wines now. Hot new labels. I might even know the artist who helps them with these labels. So, yeah, check those out. Anyway, today on the podcast, I was getting into that. Is Hugh Crichton. Hugh's an old mate. Uh, I always say I started off at Tiawa in 2008. was my first vintage. My first real vintage was at Vital in 2009. And we do discuss that a little bit. I'm not even sure if I officially said that and why Hugh and I were kind of talking about that vintage. But I worked for him that vintage. I worked for the Villa Maria group and uh, became very... Uh, Vital is a huge part of my story, so they're real close to my heart. I worked in the restaurant, in the tasting room, in the winery, and I did a research paper in one of their vineyards. So, yeah, really knew that place up and down. I knew a lot of people there, and that the place that really taught me how to be a good seller hand. Well, talked to some of my former bosses. At least I hope I think I was a good seller hand, and really taught me how to make wine. You know, uh, that was the best first hands-on experience I had. And, you know, you sort of get thrown into a fire in those type of uh, bigger, high-quality winemaking places. You know, I say bigger, but that's in the scale of New Zealand wine. It's probably a bit bigger, but, yeah, nothing compared to what they're doing in Marlboro or, you know, dare I say, some of these other countries around the world and regions in California where they're just doing massive volumes. It's still pretty small premium winemaking at the end of the day. So if I forgot to thank you during the interview, Hugh, if you are actually listening to this, thank you. And to Richard and Pat, that year was a great experience for me. So yeah, uh, we talk talk about Hugh's Chardonnay quite a bit. Uh, I mentioned in the interview, I think it is the benchmark for that uh, sort of flinty, uh, he talks about some of the ideas where he, he, he got that from and why he went with that style eventually. But that sort of gun smoke, slightly reductive style, I think year in and year out, and for the last probably 10 years, Vital has done the best with that. I think there's a lot of people that hop on it and they'll do it as well. And man, those wines across the border of extremely great value. And I think Hugh even mentions they're really trying to push into the more premium market as they should. Those wines are amazing. So um, thank you, Hugh, for doing the interview. Uh, what else do I say? I don't, I don't think I have anything else to say. Just listen to this interview and uh, we'll wrap it up at the end. I do have a few more things, a bit of housekeeping to do with the podcast. So here's Hugh Crichton from Vital Estate. That's better. Yeah. You got a good deep voice, you, so I've seen you do public speaking before too many times, so uh, sorry about that. Back in the day, man, when we were uh Back in the day. We were at the old vital days. Got old so days. we are we are recording, we are live now, but <coughs> back in the vital days was two thousand nine and you were fairly green to vital back then still. It was like second yeah. second or third vintage probably. Yeah, uh, I joined there in end of 04. So 2005 was the first vintage. 
But when you were chief winemaker, was 07 your first year? Yeah, Rod left in 06, so 07 was the first vintage. Pretty good vintage to start off with. Yeah, lucky break. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then you said something earlier when we were uh, grabbing a coffee is that uh, you went to Lincoln for a bit, but going way back, obviously you said you just told me you were born in Wellington. You were in London for a while. Yeah, born in Wellington and then um, ended up at university in Canterbury, did a Bachelor of Commerce down there. Went back to Wellington, worked for a few years, and then did an OE, and um, yeah, ended up in London. And had a bit of a light bulb moment, I guess, whilst living there and working in the city. Um, and so far as I came to the conclusion that I wanted to shed the suit and tie. Yeah. And wine at that stage was really just an interest and a passion from a kind of reading, drinking, traveling point of view. Um, So at that point I decided, why don't I do a course in it part-time, what's a year of my life? I'll look back and think that's nothing. And I kind of got hooked like most wine people do. So was that course in London or in... It was was in West Sussex, a place called Plumpton College, which was actually a really good course that was based on a Roseworthy course uh, or the Roseworthy course, um, but it was had quite a practical bent to it. So it was winemaking, it wasn't? This so it was winemaking and viticulture. Hmm. Um, and, the, and then I ran a small vineyard whilst doing the course with an English guy, um, which was about four and a half acres or something. So we did all the hands-on growing. And then um, I worked for a, a company called Chapel Down, which uh, are making really good quality bubbly-based wines. I was going to say, was it bubbly? Yeah. yeah they were on to the climate change back then as well? Yeah, look, I remember the, um, Craig Foss, who was my lecturer at Plumpton, and he, so this was in the mid-90s when I was there, and he said the forecasters were saying that within 20 years um, the UK would have a similar climate to Champagne. And, of course, the, the soils are pretty much identical. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see what's happened over there. Yeah, and... You know, speaking with uh, one, you know, one of the things we could touch on later with uh, Hawke's Bay, for instance, is that critical mass. Even the time that I've been in New Zealand and I've followed more wine and wine writers, you've seen so many more money and producers and talent go into English winemaking that, of course, the game's going to be raised no matter what, you know. Yeah, look, and I, I think, I mean, our distributor in the UK is a, um, a, a company called Hatch Mansfield, and they distribute for Tattinger, and Tattinger have just gone into a joint venture with them, so Tattinger have actually purchased land and have planted vineyards and will be releasing their first English bubbly before too long. So uh, if it's good enough for a champagne house to buy yeah, land and more and more of that, make right? wine, it's, it's a pretty good sign of the future, I think. And is it... I actually don't know that much about it. I've had a few, but are they going more Appalachian system or is it? Yeah, look, to be honest, I'm a bit out of touch. I haven't had that many. Yeah, um, I just seem to I'm, read about them more uh, than anything. Yeah, look, I'm sure they, they yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they are. Uh, I, I can't see why they wouldn't be. Um, so, yeah, that'll be interesting to see where the strong Appalachians come out. But, you know, Kent is a pretty, Kent and Sussex are probably the two two um regions to watch mm. out for but i'm sure there'll be others yeah i've seen on the in the sort of twitter verse and stuff that uh the well some people take it as a joke and some people take it too seriously that <laughs> uh you know english wine english bubbling has 
you know, a disproportionate amount written about it because there's so many good English wine writers. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. Everyone's everyone's praying and hoping that it's yeah. going to do something great, but you know, it's it's some time until you can hit the market. And I always remember going to um, um, a talk uh, put on by the late Paul Pontellier, who was the technical director of Margot, and um, they were just celebrating 300 years of vintages. <laughs> and one of the UK wine writers who was out, and they're putting on a big, big deal at the Shadow. Uh, and we all know how expensive those wines are. And actually, we all know how, how many cases they make of their first wines. It's not a small amount. No. So the wine writer said to Paul, you must be so happy with where you're at. Um, you make X amount of cases and you charge X amount of pounds per bottle. To which Paul said, yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong, we're incredibly happy, but it took us 300 years. <laughs> so, so, you know, so we've all got a long way to go. Yeah, it's it's perspective and all that. I mean, it's, uh, on the one hand, you're excited to be, it's exciting to be a part of, a, you know, newer region, newer varietals, do these new things, but then in a similar vein, we went to an, an Oak presentation uh, with Charles and Jenny Dobson recently, yeah. and, uh, and the the cooperage there and you know they're talking a hundred years by the time you know an average anywhere from 80 to 120 years an, an average of when that thing was planted to mm. when you're you end up getting this this barrel mm. and that puts a little more perspective you're like yeah yeah drop in the ocean you know yeah like it's a long-term game isn't it we all know that and i think that's the exciting thing about new zealand at the moment when you consider we've only been on the wine scene for a very short time you know with the exception of places like fire or state which have been around since 1905 but on the quality wine scene with with a you know number of great producers it's it's a relatively short short period um so we are in the early days, but I think it's particularly exciting for Hawke's Bay where we're focusing on those premium varieties like Chardonnay, Syrah, Bordeaux blends that can command some of the highest prices in the world no matter where they're made. Yeah. And of course you add Pinot Noir to that as well. It's just that Hawke's Bay doesn't do a massive... We do some Pinot Noir, of course, but not a massive amount. So yeah, um, we're at the very early stages of something great, I think, which means wines are way undervalued for what they are yes yeah it's uh while you're preaching to the choir i'm constantly yeah. pounding the pavement telling that story and yeah. trying to get people to understand particularly with pinot noir and syrah uh in in you know the u.s for example where things mm. are really competitive and they do appreciate really good wines but you have to say well listen you're getting in on the ground floor and some of these are even established brands mm. Uh, that you know, I'm trying to compare to and say, hey, check this out. And um, you know, we're somewhere like uh, you know, just as an example, somewhere like Oregon, the prices have just shot up in the last five to ten years, mm. almost mm. to like Napa standards mm. uh, for a lot of these producers. And it's only because of relative proximity to market and mm. marketing and things like mm. that, where I'm like. I, I can honestly say with full confidence, I, I, I certainly like New Zealand Pinot Noir on a whole more than I like Oregon Pinot Noir. Mm. It just comes in a bigger, heavier bottle, and it's got maybe some slicker marketing and access mm. to Portland and San Francisco and places like that and the rest of the country. So, you know, what might be a $100 Pinot there is a $40, $50 Pinot here, which is pretty, yeah. pretty crazy to consider when you think about that disparity. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. But the challenge is always getting people to try the wines, get it over their taste buds, and then hopefully they'll see that. Because one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down with you, which I had mentioned to you a while back, I got to get you on the podcast, but uh, when we were at that Giblet Gravels ABS tasting, you posed the question, uh, and I don't think, you know, we had time to sort of hash it out with the whole group there, but I, I w- wanted to talk to you more about it. It was, like, it was about Syrah, and it said, like, you know, what are we doing wrong or what can we do better as mm. compared to Pinot Noir, even just domestically? I brought up overseas, and I think you or Gordon or somebody said, well, what about even just here in New Zealand I'm t- we're talking about, you know, when somebody goes into the wine shop, how can we get them to go more for these amazing Syrahs that we're producing as opposed to a Pinot all the time, you know? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one because, um, as we know, Syrah and Shiraz are the same varieties, but they make completely different wines. So I think there's still a little bit of confusion out there um, and, and a number of people don't actually know what Syrah is. Um, they probably know that they probably a number of people probably know northern rhone wines ahead of syrah even yeah, though yeah, obviously totally. it's predominantly made from syrah so that's that that's a bit of a challenge and it's a relatively new wine style as well when you look at hawks bay syrah um, i think our um, opportunity and opening is with that when you look at what consumers are increasingly drinking these days and it's um, on the red wines anyway lighter fresher not at the expense of concentration and flavour, um, but lighter, fresher-styled wines that have real drinkability. And I think that's what Syrah can offer. Yep. You know, the, as we know, the beautiful perfumes, they can have fresh acidity. We just really have to watch those levels of spice or pepper that you see in them, which can be more evident in, in cooler years or more evident when growers get greedy and over overcrop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think... I think, you know, from a style preference, from a consumer point of view, I think there's a huge opportunity, but we we just need to, you know, once again, get the message out there, one, what Syrah is, and two, you know, the quality of them out there, because there's no shortage of blind tastings around the world where some of the Gimlet Gravel Syrahs are outdoing some of the greatest Syrahs in the Northern Rhone Valley at a fraction of the price. Yeah, and I would even say there's fantastic Bridge Pa ones and yeah, you know, of course, uh, cor- yeah. yeah, other Hawks Bay ones yeah. and yeah, I'm yet to be convinced on a larger scale about Marlborough and Martinborough, although I've had some good ones from there. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to, I think that's what I was sort of touching on when I said the overseas market is like, look at how good New Zealand Pinot Noir is and how popular it is in New Zealand and. I think people in Australia get it. I can tell mm. from even just my little, you know, blip on the statistics that, uh, you know, that the they appreciate a good Martinborough Pinot. They know the difference between Otago and Martinborough, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's a critical mass thing where we just don't have enough out there Yeah. at this yeah. stage. Because going back to what I said about, you know, Portland or, uh, or Oregon Pinots, we're just starting to break the ice in the u.s uh which is our best wine market for exports with pinot noir and mm. or i should say quality pinot noir you can find some out there mm. but what the really good stuff is who the good producers and knowledgeable about different regions and all that and so it's it, you think about you compare that to what's going on here at home you're right the people don't 
no. necessarily to know to go for a Syrah. Yeah, or... look, and I think maybe the overseas markets are where that's going to that, those are the markets that are going to lead the lead the demand. And I've just come back from a trip in the UK, and I was tasting our Vital Reserve Syrah um, twenty seventeen, and it's no secret that twenty seventeen was a challenging vintage yep. in Hawke's Bay. And I was a little bit nervous, but um, in hindsight, I'm not sure why I was because the lo- the wine it's fragrant, it's light, um, it's not too spicy. We managed to you know get that right and get the yields right, and we we're a bit selective in, in our picking, I guess. But the wine was just loved. I mean, yeah. we sold a truckload of it because yeah. uh, people just loved that lighter, more fragrant style. And in the UK, they're used to that, you know, for those Cote de Rhone wines. Um, and and they like lighter wines with more moderate alcohols and a bit more acidity. So, yeah, I think we're co- I'm confident we'll get there. It's just it's just taking longer than we thought. We just need Bill to make a lot more wine, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of which, that's been a uh, big change for you recently. Is from the uh, well, from a pretty old winery to a pretty damn new awesome winery as well. I always liked the Vital Cellar, but it was a bit. Build up over the years, I could say, you know. Yeah, like I, yeah, it, it was, yeah. We have made the move to the new winery, and it's always sad to lose a part of your roots. But you know, when we were set up in 1905 in the middle of Hastings, there no one was around us. We had no residential area. Um, it was horse-drawn carts and paddocks. So, um, in that sort of situation, you can do what you want and when you want. Um, but we quickly became surrounded by residences who never liked presses who you know what it's like you've worked there you never like presses operating late at night and and we just found that um that was starting to influence our picking decisions and operation decisions and uh, you know if we had some poor weather coming up from the south in the autumn close to picking then we couldn't always pick when we wanted to pick um so you know our company our quarter our company is making quality wine so in something like that interferes with that it's the the future's not is always looking bleak so yeah that was a main reason for moving um but but the sellers themselves we we you know what they were like they were, they were pretty, interesting drainage <laughs> solutions had to be come they up were, with it was, they were pretty challenging to work in um and, and, and you know quite quite kooky in many respects but um yeah, look, we're, we're trying to move vital into that sort of ultra-premium market and we're having some pretty good successes from a quality point of view. Um, but that, that, that sadly, that place kind of didn't reflect that when you were taking wine riders around. Yeah. And not that we're into flashy-looking wineries, that's kind of not our thing, but um, it is important, that impression you make. So, uh, you know, the, the exciting thing is, is that without question, quality's gone up in our new winery, um, without question. So... So much closer to the vineyards and being able to pick when we Yeah, no, it's a great part of the story. And if anything, uh, the uh, institution that was uh, on St. Albans Street there can be very proud of the fact that they, if you if you ask around Hawke's Bay and ask around New Zealand, they made a hell of a lot of wine, uh, a lot of cellar rats, you know, like myself, we learned how to make wine there, you know, and you had to do it and you had to be on it and you had to work hard and... Yeah, uh, there was no cheats, and I mean, yep. not that there is any at the new place, but it's like you know, you had to get wine from over there to over there, yeah, and do it efficiently and quickly and with high quality standards in mind. So, yeah, um, 
A question though, uh, I got a little tour of the new winery from Nick and it was mm. so cool to see, uh, particularly what they did for you guys in the sort of small batch or premium yeah, yeah. Uh, range. Yeah. Uh, when I was there, you were producing, uh, that was it the stop bank Pinot Noir. Yeah. And you used yeah. to doing those insulated, elevated, uh, open top, for, open top fermenters. Yeah. And then I think Syrah in there as well, right? Yeah. We had some Syrah and, and a little bit of Cabernet every now and then. Yeah. Did you, was that something that carried on? Did you continue to use those? Obviously they were in there. So did you, was that something or anything like that, that you were trying to replicate in the new winery for you guys? Um, we've got a lot of open top fermenters in the new winery. So that was, that was our big thing, um, at Vital with Syrah anyway. Um, but aside from that, to be honest, there wasn't. There's not a great deal of difference because you know, let's face it, a barrel's a barrel, no matter yeah, sure, no matter sure. where it's stored. Yeah, and a tank's a tank. Um, so you know, obviously, Gordon at Esk had had his concrete um, tanks um, made in France to replicate what he had in Esk. But no, we're, we're our kind of our kind of emphasis has always been on on the vineyard. Um, and less about fancy stuff in the winery. Sure, sure, sure. So it's so nothing has really changed in that respect. You know, a lot of hand picked fruit, or even if it's machine picked, it's sort of made in the same way. The benefit, I guess, is the real invest. The real plus for me is uh, receivable mm-hmm. gear, the small gear and the big gear um, is so gentle. Um, so the quality of the juice is quite incredible. Because after that stage. Um, we're just making the wine in the same way. So Chardonnay's, you know, naturally fermented in French oak, manually de-stirred, end of story. So yeah. new old winery, that hasn't changed. So actually, you know, not much really has changed. We're, we've got the same vineyards. Um, so I was a bit concerned, if I'm honest, about where it was going to go. But yeah, looking yeah. back on it, I should have thought, well... You know, the wine style is determined by the season. Well, that doesn't matter where you are. It's depend- determined by the vineyards. Well, it doesn't matter where the winery is in. Um, and it's determined by people. And our vineyard people have stayed the same. And I'm sort of the winemaker and, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, the big decisions and the quality is where it's always been. And I think, uh, to me, I think that's how vitals perceived in the market, that you're not going to get a wine that's like, tricky or too out there you know they're going to yeah. be just of high quality and varietal yep. and yep. really good and and uh though you are going into that ultra premium still probably of really good value certainly yeah. internationally that's for sure yeah yeah for sure but and, uh, we, and we do and we just we do have a classical approach yeah um, and we do you know a natural ferment chardonnay you know we've been doing that for a long time and um and high solids ferments we've been doing for a long, long time, way before sort of became fashionable, I guess. So, well, that was my next question. Was I don't maybe uh, my tasting uh, memory isn't what it should be, but I don't remember earlier vital Chardonnays having the distinct fingerprint that you put on them, mm. and uh, I certainly talk about that. Vital, I guess it's is it the legacy now or yeah, legacy is our top. That is yeah. the benchmark for me as far as that style of, uh, you know, that matchstick mm. uh, style. And I kind of mm. wanted to ask, 
where did how did you come to that? Was it something in your past, or was it something that you just thought, oh well, I started to really love this style, so I'm going to keep going in that direction? Yeah, look, I, I think that's you're right. It's definitely part of the style, but it's just just a part of it. So um, I, I think it was stem probably from um, the love of those sort of wines if they've got really nice acidity and if they've got balanced oak and so everything from else burgundy chablis where, where yeah so taste tasting well you know pre coming back here we had 12 years living in europe largely in london um so we were drinking a lot of european wines so a lot of it probably stemmed from those early drinking influences uh and burgundy we've visited it's probably my most visited wine area as a traveler not just working yeah um, so tried a lot of those wines, but also having spoken to a few people out there, there and you know producers and their approach to making Chardonnay, having seen some of it as well, that probably influenced. Um, so a com- combination of things, um, and you know, you know, we started. I mean, I was sort of I was lucky to um, have a lot to do with the 2005 Idle Reserve Chardonnay. Um, that Rod, the previous winemaker, had given me some responsibility over. And that was when we blended that wine. Um, and I'd only been in New Zealand for you know a couple of years at that stage or something. Um, when we blended that wine, it had that really nice background, um, sort of flinty, aromatic character, but had real concentration of fruit and beautiful acidity behind it. So that was the first kind of departure in style. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of honed it more really um and and for me it's again it is driven by the vineyard and it's but it's driven by ironically not really doing much in the wine yeah. so it's <laughs> so it's hand-picked fruit and getting that picking decision is critical you know when you've got beautiful acidity um so and of course yield control as it's always the case getting the concentration in there but hand-picking fruit juice the barrel naturally fermented um, not inoculating for malo, but letting some go through if it wants to go through and if it needs to go through for balanced acidity. Lee stirring, and that's it. Yep. So it's a very, you know, people do talk about Chardonnay being the winemaker's wine and their, where their winemaker's ability to influence flavour more. But actually, out of all varieties, that's the, that's the wine we do the least to. Yeah. We do yeah. pretty much nothing. Yeah. Um, so that... That character that we get, um, I, I find it quite attractive. And um, I know it's been a little bit controversial all around the world, actually. But I've got to say, we have been doing it for a hell of a long time. And yeah, so I'm, it, I'm sadly, it has <coughs> become fashionable. And it sort of makes me want to yeah, yeah. stop doing it because it has become fashionable. But I love, if you get the balance right. Yeah. Well, and, I was going to say, you go back to the fruit. The one thing I've noticed with other producers, I'm not going to name any other producers, but... Uh, there has been, I would say, inconsistency in going for that style, mm. which is, again, mm. why I say the benchmark, and I always go to that because I know I can pick any vintage in the last 10 years or something and know that the quality is going to be there, and that, of course, starts with the fruit mm. and the picking decisions and the mm. you know, and the receivable, going back to what you say. So mm. I think uh, that almost shows – almost agreeing with you in that it's less – this heavy-handed winemaking and more like, no, we're going to get the picking decision right. Yep. Maybe choose the right oak and things like that yep. and technique, yep. but it's not going to be too heavy-handed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've had some 
ones that wow this is really great and exciting then i went back to it not not a vital of other producers went back to it a different vintage and went oh that's way too funky or way too eggy or yeah whatever it is and and it hasn't had that that sort of delicacy that yeah i think uh, that delicate hand you know that's the challenge as that's the challenge i think is to have finesse delicacy within that framework even my own winemaking, like I, I went a little crazy on my 19 Chardonnay just to experiment with it. And it's funny. Or on my 18 and my 19, I, I pulled back a lot to be like, okay, I think i am got my head around some things now. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think, I think the, not, the thing about that character that we're talking about in Chardonnay is that definitely over time it becomes more integrated. Mm. Um, but if the wine is only about that, um, it becomes more integrated, but then what's behind it? Where's the fruit? Where's the concentration of flavour? So if you get that right, then as that character becomes more integrated, everything else comes up through. So we find after a couple of years and then going forward, that character just becomes more and more. And where's the most of the fruit come from that? Is that gravels? Or? Depends a bit on the vintage. Yeah, um, yeah we've got a, a vineyard in the gravels, um, and then we um, have a, a legacy vineyard out in um, Kelton Vineyard in Mariah, oh, Kākāhu. Yeah, sure, sure. And there's one at, at Kokako Farm in Ohiti Valley. So it kind of depends on the vintage and how each vineyard performs, really. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, but they, are, they each offer something a bit different. That's very cool. Um but going back to you, so then, you know, we sort of touched on it a few times. You left, you mentioned you went down to Lincoln? Yeah, so came, so came back uh, from London, having been away for 12 years and, and had made the decision at that stage. Actually, I was coming back to do vintages. I did several for James Milton while we were based in London oh, um, okay. in the late 90s. Um, so he's been a bit of an inspiration in, in, in many areas. What, what a dude. Uh, yeah, what a great guy. And um, I, I came out of there with great appreciation of what he was doing, but I still didn't understand it that much. <laughs> um, but I'm sure I'm, anybody does. But yeah. he's, he certainly had a big influence on me without question. Um, yeah, so went back um, to Lincoln, moved back with the family, which was a bit of a shock to the system, to be honest, uh, and got into the study for a year uh, and loved it and then and then came out and, and actually was offered a job at Fidel straight away. So moved up to Hawke's Bay, had an option of going to Central Otago as well, um, but the but, um, the warmer climes appealed of Hawke's Bay, uh, and, and the, of course the wines that were being made here. Yeah, were you attracted to that right away? You know, having been from Wellington, obviously some Hawke's Bay wines are on your radar, but it, easily at that time he could have gone, oh, well, let's go to Otago or something like that, you know. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm quite a keen skier, so that was quite appealing for me to move down there. But my wife doesn't like the cold, so <laughs> Fair so that was that was an influencing factor. But I, I think you know one of my loves was Chardonnay. Okay, and then when I think, I and I can see the potential. Well, not just see the potential, but I could see some of the great Chardonnays being produced in Hawke's Bay, but also the potential for to more for more of them. So that was a big driver to come here, the Chardonnay Homer. I think the home of Chardonnay, let's face it. Yeah, well, again, I think it goes back to consistency and critical mass, which we talked about before. I yep. certainly have some great Chardonnay in Martinborough. It's just not a lot of Martinborough. A lot of people, some yep. people just make Pinot. Yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, right. And you get great Chardonnay in Central Targo and great yeah, Chardonnay but, in Gisborne, of course. But, but they're not always making it. And yeah, I would definitely, with the, the Hawke's Bay 
Gisborne thing, I would go back more to the critical mass and the humidity and things like that. You know, there's just not a lot of producers in Gisborne and yes, yeah, yes, sad as as it is. I mean, it happens all around the world. There'll be some regions that produce a higher volume of really high quality wines, and therefore those regions become recognised for that. And yeah, I think you know, I don't think many people would disagree that Hawke's Bay's probably making the highest volume of high-quality Chardonnays in the country. Well, certainly Michael Brakovich agrees with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to see them buying a bit of land down here, that's for sure. So I was up there. He was on the podcast uh, at the end of last year. And, uh, yeah, talk about a dude. I mean, that guy is so interesting and uh, steeped in history. But obviously him and his family have the foresight to know, well, property prices around here, and they see the writing on the wall, and uh, yeah, there's going to be a kind of no-brainer situation where, uh, yeah, and so they're they're hedging their bets and slowly moving stuff down here. And I haven't been out to the site yet, but it sounds like a pretty interesting site. Up, uh, yeah, look, I haven't been either, but I, I would love to go. And, and maybe he had in the back of his mind global warming as well. Who knows? I think so, and I think he, you know, he expressed you know, humidity pressure and different things like that, that, uh, are constantly, uh, well, they're, they're more under pressure for those type of things up there and disease and everything. Yeah. And, and yeah. uh, we do have it, you know, we have our struggles down here, but we do have it a little easier, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I look, he's making some beautiful wines and he's been a, um, a big inspiration for me. Yeah. yeah he's great. Yeah. And, uh, his mom was, uh, still around the, the winery and the cellar and uh yeah she saw what you often see her at the smacking cellar door. some heads and stuff <laughs> yeah. you know i mean you know not literally but certainly seemed like keeping things in line so yeah, no, uh, she's the head of the family that's for sure. absolutely yeah yeah no it was really really cool um so uh yeah going back to your story then you got into here and uh just going back to when do you think with vital i mean i always looked at that plaque on the wall there that said was it 1979 first wine bar yeah in yeah. new zealand which is yeah. it's pretty remarkable to think yeah it was uh, yeah oh, the first winery restaurant um which scandalous is, you know which is remarkable that well i guess it's, it's not that remarkable that we were the first um winery but it was remarkable or not i guess what am i trying to say not that remarkable that you know we had a, um, a restaurant but remarkable that no one before us <laughs> were allowed to have uh, a restaurant and a winery because it was illegal you know the laws are such that the wi- a winery could not open a restaurant so it's bizarre when you look at how many restaurants are associated to wineries these days so a lot of, a lot of liquor laws are a little backwards you know and, yeah uh, had, had the opposite result of what you'd you'd think uh, in the new world particularly i mean you know the americas know uh you know with our own prohibition and stupid laws to uh only almost encourage binge drinking and you know encourage things that uh, yeah are yeah. against you know why not you know uh encourage the way things are in say europe where it's not a big deal yeah don't drink too much enjoy a nice wine with food that's the big thing you know with with, with food, the winery yeah. restaurant is with yeah. food you know yeah and that and that with food is a is a really important for us because you hear a lot of people banging on about food friendly wines but it's almost a bit of a throwaway marketing line in some respects but um with us it's definitely a big part of our wine style yeah and something we're considering right through from when you pick the grapes through to 
you know, amount of oak and acidity and all the rest of it, um, that we're always thinking, is this wine going to go well with, with food? And I think, you know, New Zealand producers are probably heading down that route anyway because it's a natural fit for our wine styles that our climate delivers. Yeah, well, the uh, the mouth-watering acidity is the biggest thing, you know. And yeah, yeah. Even with big reds, and I, I harp on this constantly, like I go out, you know, say, even I've been to this great restaurant in New York that was, I think it's called Burger and Barrel, and it's like the greatest burger joint you've ever been to, you know, really nice place, but there's like four Psalms on the floor. Yeah, amazing right. wine lists. And I'm not... Not that I ever really did, but there would have been times where I thought, oh, a big red, you know, or, or, and I have certainly friends back home that would go that way. But my big red is Northern Italy, Spain, parts of France, not Bordeaux really anymore. It's more of these uh, fresher style, mm. Syrahs, Grenache, things that are, you mm. know, or even cool, you know, I, I joke around hot climate Pinot is Grenache from, from Australia, you know, and there are a lot of producers are starting to go in that direction where they're a little more fresher in style Mm, mm. and so when you drink them they finish you know they're still got good tannin they're still ripe you know they don't have that peppery thing that you were Mm. or green thing Mm. even worse um but they finish fresh so you draw in for either more food or another sip you know instead of like heavy weighing down yeah like you want to be able to enjoy your last glass in the bottle as much as you enjoyed the first glass don't need a 15 and a half percent bomb yeah know? exactly uh, but I, i've seen it all pull back even in the time i'm here and i can remember going to like brookfield's tastings when i first got here and them and those guys even saying then oh we're now tasting like the 07s and 8s and 9s mm. and oh man they've really pulled back on the oak what you know xyz mm. producer mm. so uh you know we taste a lot of 98s for instance that were a little yeah generous yeah and i think those you know it comes back to climate and soils again and what what your climate and soils naturally deliver and and so the, by that i mean um um when i say natural i don't mean under the new term of natural wine making yeah, of yeah. course but for me every every variety has its natural place in the world and within a country yeah. and for me a natural place means that you don't have to do much if anything at all um, and the problem with too much oak or um, or making t- um, bad decisions in the winery is that you lose that natural place. Um, so yeah, that's that's what was happening in New Zealand. That was what was happening all around the world. So our our style framework, our natural style framework, is one of freshness, as you know, and you yes. know balanced alcohols and good acidity and. Um, and and a, you know it's a matter of finding that natural style and and you know, it's natural place for a variety, whether it's Pinot Noir and Martinborough or Central Targo or Chardonnay and Hawke's Bay or you know maybe Marlborough or Martinborough. Um, it's just trying to seek out those natural places. And in New Zealand, we tried so many different varieties in so many different places, as as you do yeah. when you have no appellation control system to tell you what that tells you what you can and can't do 
Um, so, of course, when we have a man, man isn't given any direction and he said go for it, and the man, will, man, man and woman will do whatever they want to try out different things. Which Plant is, Cabernet on swampy soils. You know? Yeah, which, which uh, in many cases has pretty bad results, yes. but it does make you realise actually Cabernet on the soil type does not work. What should we try now? So we're kind of not that far past that experimental um, stage in New Zealand, but we're... We're certainly starting to see focus of varieties in their natural place. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to look past Marlborough. Sauvignon Blanc's not the only place that grows Sauvignon Blanc, of course. There's some other great areas. But when you look at the highest volume, the highest quality wines, most of them are coming out of Marlborough. You yeah. know, Central Tayo, there's a lot of great Pinot Noir being made down there. But, of course, some wrestling and other bits and pieces. Um, Martinborough's, you know, some great Pinot Noir there, of course, <coughs> and, and some really nice Chardonnays. So slowly we're finding our natural yeah places. what our what our places are and yeah yeah I probably don't help with all my yeah. bad habits and well, different wines I'm well, making you know well you know so it's it's the wine industry shouldn't just be about that because it would be boring you've got to make it interesting which you know is happening in Hawke's Bay whether it's through Malbec or Viognier or you know Gewürztraminer, Albarino, Chenin um, Blanc. I mean, you, got, you guys Blanc. got some of that same Chenin I got. Gordon did. I mean, at Villa. Yeah. And, uh, man, I know that was probably about as good as year we could ask for in nineteen because it was so dry. But you know, there's I, I can't with the right site. Chenin Blanc, what a what a varietal for Hawks Bay. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 yeah. No, like it, most years, could be really good like that. And and what's cool is, I've tasted some from say Otago, and I thought, man, that has a lot of residual sugar because it's so damn green that they needed yeah, yeah. to offset it. And we can actually get it to a spot that, uh, you know, maybe in a tougher year you pick it a little, or a year where a storm's coming or something, you pick it a little earlier, and uh, it's got a still pronounced acid and yeah and yeah. ripe and you know really really lovely so yeah look um, and i think that's a very good point you made you you want you want the regions to be trialing and be innovative and because it's if you don't do that you're not going to find not the next big big thing but you're not going to find that variety that actually perhaps does have a natural place and you know when you look at Syrah. Syrahs hasn't been planted that long, but if we didn't have this sort of openness and innovative approach of trying different things, we wouldn't have found Syrah. So, yeah, you know, things, things, things. Plus, it makes it a lot more interesting as a region for other, with other stuff going on. Yeah, well, it certainly suits the greater wine world right now to have, you know, to walk into a tasting room and not just have a red blend, a Syrah, and a Chardonnay. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's oh, we got a Malbec, we we have the Viognier, we got a Chenin, we got yep. you know a Sticky or whatever it is, yeah, and uh, or a Nouveau style or something like that. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, I think particularly the next uh, generation of drinkers are are into the the different, you know, and the unique and the story and all that. Yeah. And hey, we do this other thing too. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. So um, that'll suit us. Again, I think the positives outweigh the negatives, so yeah, you know, we're in a good spot. Yep. As long as you're ticking the quality boxes, then not, you know it doesn't matter really what what you're doing. And and naturally, the place will come to those varieties that excels. But you'll always have a, a percentage of that's a bit different and still but still good quality, but just outside of the mainstream, which you want. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, well, man, you good? Yeah. Anything else you want to say to the? I mean, it's just 
people from all over the world listening. Is there anything else? Uh, do we miss anything? No, I think you. I think you covered it. We got it. Most oh, good. Of it. good I, th- I think you Just covered it. I, I, if, I, if I'm, you know, to any listeners out there who haven't tried any Hawke's Bay Chardonnay, so um, it really is something pretty special that's starting to come out of here. And as I mentioned earlier, I've just come back from a trip in the UK and um, people were blown away by the quality of the Chardonnay. Not necessarily just the most expensive stuff either. And when you look at the, the, and don't get me wrong, I love Burgundy, but when you look at the prices of oh, yeah, of those on the shelves in the UK, <laughs> a Premier Crew starting at kind of 80, 90 quid plus. It's crazy. Um, and that's, you know, obviously not even Grand Cru prices. And even the Village wines, you know, you, we're getting some of our top wines in Hawke's Bay that are below Village prices. So there's a real opportunity there. And whoever I've tried our top wines with, or even our mid-tier wines, Fire Reserve, people have been blown away by the quality. So, you know, I think I think that's the point I always try and make is can encourage people that to try different varieties. You know, New Zealand offers, you know, of course Sauvignon Blanc is, is an incredibly important variety for our country but if we want to grow into those ultra premium variety segments around the world um, we really need more consumers trying them so that is chardonnay yep um that is pinot noir that is syrah that is the bordeaux yeah and it's a funny thing about chardonnay is they're made all over the world but it can be reinvented for you i've probably said it on this podcast you know 20 times that it was reinvented for me when i moved to new zealand and all the time I'm tasting better and better ones from Hawke's Bay and the rest of the country as well. So yeah, we just want to encourage people to think, uh, Oh, I don't really like Chardonnay. You know, it's like, Oh, you're yeah. crazy. You haven't tasted the right ones yet. Then, yeah. You know? I, I, th- I think <laughs> maybe we're moving on from that yeah, Chardonnay generic as well. And, yeah. and cause for me, great Chardonnays are made in slightly cooler climates, yep. no matter where they're made around the world and not made in hot climates. And that's that's what I think consumers are preferring the most now. Those sort of cooler climate styles, without being lean and mean and um, high high too high or acid, but um, having freshness within a framework of balanced alcohols. Uh, that's where I think the real interest is for consumers, and that's where some of the great Chardonnays of the world, uh, or how they how they're being made. Yeah, it comes back to food, you know. Yeah. Back to ageability. Ageability. Yep. Yep. Um, well, cool, man. Thanks for doing this and taking Thanks, a little Dan. time out in the middle of your your busy schedule. It's all good. Thanks in a for four day me. week, you know. Yeah, it's hard to come back after four days, isn't it? <laughs> I hear you, man. That's why I'm still home. You know? <laughs> all right, cheers, man. Thanks, cool. and I Thanks, will uh, put all the the info up after this, and uh, we'll talk soon. I'm sure I see you in the hood. Cool. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, Hugh. What a dude. Great conversation. Uh, smart guy. Uh, interesting. And uh, yeah, yeah, Syrah. Check it out. Chardonnay, check it out. Uh, Hugh's making some great wines, continuing a great legacy, uh, pun intended, of winemaking there. 
And um, what else? So we do have a Instagram account. Of course, I will post all of Vital's Instagram account on uh, you know on our with a post. If you want to go to our website, which is dbpodcast.org, but our Instagram is dbvintagestories. And uh, yeah, well, you can check it all out there. Vital Wines is just at uh, Vital Wines on Instagram. That's easy way to check it out. Uh, oh, don't confuse it with Vita Wines, which is uh, a. Um, so you want to go to Vital Estate, I think is what you want to do on there. Anyway, I'm going to have the, their uh, website and all that up on our. Uh, website, check it out. But I mean, who doesn't know? Vital, one of the most historic wineries in New Zealand. Uh, Hugh was mentioning they're in the UK. I believe there are a few other markets around the world uh, making some great stuff. I'm going to try to sneak in one more of these podcasts. I think I've talked about this before, but basically I can do a bunch of these in the wintertime and it's tough to do in the spring. Things start getting crazy for sales trips. And this is not just me. This is a lot of the winemakers I want to talk to and people in the industry. People start getting ready for bottling. It's just a less quiet time of year. The vineyard's going off. So really tough to get some of the vineyard guys in. So I don't know. I might have one more this season. Uh, that's a bit up in the air. There's a couple people that I missed out on talking to. Uh, but I think it's time anyway for a bit of a reboot. I've really covered Hawks Bay a lot. I'm sure I'll dip in and revisit some people and talk to over the years. There's definitely some people I could talk to again that I haven't talked to in a long time who will have some upcoming projects and interesting things to talk to. I think it would be an idea to have one or two different people in. You know, we have these great dinner parties and things with, you know, multiple winemakers in. And I've heard from some of the punters that are uh, hanging out watching. They say, this is pretty amazing. You guys all hang out and open up these different wines and, and we get to experience and see, see this conversation go. So maybe that's an idea. Dare I say, possibly some wine writers or not, yeah, wine writers, maybe, you know, on some of my trips through America, and sort of flip the script on them. I'm always following them on Twitter. They see, you know, their Twitter is a very good app for writers, whether whatever industry you're in. You know, you could follow a New York Times writer or a New Zealand Herald writer on there, and they seem to be the quick to the draw and have the the quip and the quick quote on, uh, you know, the latest things that are happening. And when you talk about, I don't know, what is it, wine Twitter. It's a lot less winemakers. There's a few steady hands out there and a few people that I see always on Twitter. Uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, Tifara Ra being, uh, being up there and from there talking and up there. But the interaction, I watch a lot of the things that they talk about, a lot of UK wine writers and some US West Coast wine writers. And I take issue with some things. I think they're a little out of touch about certain things and uh you know most of it is not mean-spirited or most of it isn't totally misguided it's just uh it's from that view instead of what this view is that i'm trying to get which is pulling back the curtain and talking to the people that are producing the wines which is why i haven't had many 
sort of Psalms or people on like that, uh, that, you know, or that sort of next phase of the industry where they have more in touch with the consumers. And I, I just find it a little more of my, if there is a duty for this podcast, it is to, uh, to show you, show people that and share these stories of people creating these things. And that's why I brought in a, you know, viticulturists and even brewers and things like that. Uh, I'm sure there's some celebrity chefs out there that I could talk to them as well, but just stay tuned. This might be the last one up. I don't know. I hope to sneak in one more. I'm talking to two or three different people right now, but my schedule's getting crazy too. So, uh, I hope to regroup. There's a trip to America and Italy coming up and, uh, hopefully a couple wine regions involved with that. So maybe I'll bring the kit with me and, and talk to some people there until then. Talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Thanks.